This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm David Brenner, the Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences at UC San Diego. And it's my um, pleasure to welcome you to today's um, health talk. It's probably the hottest topic ever, the um, COVID-19 vaccines. I hope that you are all um, staying um, safe and well. And we know that um, there's a lot of concern about when you get vaccinated, the timing, the um, number of people who can get vaccinated, the availability of vaccines. And we're going to address some of these um, important issues um, today. Um, on a personal level, um, I just received um, yesterday my second dose of um, of the um, Moderna vaccine, and I am a little bit um, febrile <laughs> and achy, so I'm not my usual chipper self. So I apologize for this. In this slide, you can see the um, the, um, the the Pekka Park um, Superstation. You can see um, a couple of our physicians, including myself, um, volunteering to va to vaccinate. Uh, some of the UC San Diego nurses, and here um, I am doing uh, my part to vaccinate. Um, my daughter, who is um, also a physician, um, when I showed her this picture, she said, um, when was the last time you, uh, you vaccinated anyone? She was a little bit worried. And I told her, you know, it's just like riding a bicycle. She shouldn't worry. And then she said, when was the last time you rode a bicycle? So um, I think that um, we're all contributing any way we can. And um, I think um, UC San Diego and the San Diego community can rest assured that we're really um, making enormous progress in um, making um, San Diego um, safe. So this is an amazing group of people we have today to discuss the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, world experts. This is, um, this is a real treat for me to participate and hopefully you'll enjoy this. Um, we have um, people who can talk about how the vaccines work, about um, how to vaccinate, when we'll vaccinate children. And maybe um, the topic that of the day is now that we're identifying these variants of COVID-19, what's the effect of the vaccine gonna be on these um, variants? So there are um, an amazing group of people. I wanna particularly um, point out that we have um, um, Mayor, um, um, Alexandra Sotor, so, sorry, Sotelo Solis, um, who is going to share um, her story about being a patient in clinical trials. I want to welcome our um, alumni, um, the UC San Diego alumni are joining us um, today. And um, I also particularly want to thank um, Sally and John Hood, whose um, generous gift has been used to support our um, vaccination um, program. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce um, my, my colleague, um, Dr. Susan Little. Um, she is the co-director of the Antiviral Research Center and professor of medicine and the Division of Infectious Diseases. She really has um, organized and conducted the, um, um, the clinical trials on um, the um, COVID-19 um, vaccine. And this is um, part of her, her long-term commitment to um, uh, understanding viral diseases. She's also an expert in um, HIV AIDS um, infections. So without further ado, um, Dr. Susan Little will discuss um, vaccine um, effectiveness, safety, and address um, some of the concerns of hesitancy around getting a vaccine. Dr. Little. Thank you very much. 
This is going to be a bit of a whirlwind tour. So uh, there are six uh, clinical trials in phase three um, study in the United States, either underway or uh, soon to begin. Um, everyone knows Moderna and Pfizer. There are also AstraZeneca and Janssen uh, that have completed enrollment, Novavax, which has recently started, and Sanofi, which is currently stalled, but hopefully will begin soon. These are enormous studies, 30 to 40,000 individuals. They in, uh, involve different vaccine platforms, uh, messenger RNA, non-replicating viral vectors, and protein subunits, um, which we can go into, I hope, in the Q&A a bit later. Um, we've started a new study almost every month since July, and the first data readout refers to the time at which the um, sponsor can apply for emergency use authorization with um, milestone safety and efficacy data. And as you already know, Moderna and Pfizer applied and received their emergency use authorization in November. Janssen has applied, and I just read this morning, may, uh, we may be seeing data next week. AstraZeneca will probably be applying, I'm guessing, in February and Novavax in April or May. Um, so you'll all be receiving uh, a copy of this uh, Q&A that Dr. Spector and I uh, did in October, uh, when will a COVID vaccine be ready? Dr. Spector is leading the Moderna trial locally while I am leading the AstraZeneca and the Janssen uh, vaccine trials. Um, so how, does, uh, the how do the messenger RNA vaccines work? Uh, well, to begin with, the spike protein of the coronavirus is what mediates uh, binding and entry of the, of the virus to host cells. So first, uh, we wanted to generate, or scientists generate, a messenger RNA sequence right here that uh, codes for the spike protein. They um, formulate it within this lipid coating because naked uh, messenger RNA is quite unstable. Um, this messenger RNA sequence then uh, forms a blueprint for making many, many, many copies of this uh, spike protein when it is delivered in the form of a messenger RNA vaccine. This is delivered into cells, um, and uh, again, this blueprint makes many, many um, uh, spike proteins, which are uh, uh, presented on the cell surface and recognized as foreign uh, so that uh, immune cells are stimulated and uh, antibodies are, are formed, which we hope then protect uh, the host uh, when they encounter um, the real virus in, in nature. Um, so in one slide, I'm going to try and review uh, the similarities and differences between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. So the Pfizer is the BNT162B2, that's the vaccine, while the Moderna is the mRNA1273. So the Pfizer uh, is given through two doses, 21 days apart. 44,000 people were participate, are participating in this trial. They were randomized one-to-one, -one, vaccine to placebo. The study excluded people with uh, a known history of COVID, but the, at the time of enrollment, there were 3% of people who ended up being serologically positive, had antibody, uh, so demonstrating prior infection. They excluded people with immunocompromising conditions people who were pregnant and people under the age of 12. As you may know, the vaccine was approved uh, for people 16 and older, so there will be data coming for people age 12 to 15. Uh, the vaccine was shown to be effective in preventing symptomatic COVID, um, and um, this F efficacy was uh, comparable across age, race, ethnicity, um, and for people with underlying conditions. Safety side effects are common for the first two to three days uh, post-vaccine, especially injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. 
Side effects are more common in younger individuals compared to older, but serious side effects are very rare, 0.6% in the vaccine population as compared to 0.5% in the placebo. There were six deaths overall, four in the placebo group, two in the vaccine, none were COVID-related. Looking now at Moderna, two doses, 28 days apart, 30,000 individuals also randomized one-to-one vaccine to placebo, very similar exclusion criteria, uh, mostly um, uh, they enrolled people um, 18 years of age and older, very similar, 94% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID, similarly effective across age, race, ethnicity, and in people with underlying conditions. Safety side effects, again, very common. When I say very common, I mean 60, 80% of people have some mild form of side effects, including mild fever, et cetera. Um, Injection site pain, fatigue, and headache are the most common. Side effects are more common in younger versus older individuals. Again, serious side effects were rare, 0.6% in both vaccine and placebo arms. There were five deaths in this study, three in placebo, two in vaccine. There was one COVID-related death, and it was in the placebo arm. So you've heard probably about vaccine-related allergic reactions. So these are published data because they're the most most well-characterized. For the Pfizer vaccine in their first 10 days after emergency use authorization, approximately 1.9 million doses of vaccine were administered. Um, And these were associated with 21 cases of severe life-threatening allergic reactions, also known as anaphylaxis, um, giving a rate of uh, 11.1 cases per million doses. This compares to an average rate of about one case per million dose of anaphylaxis associated with vaccine administration in general. So about 10 times the rate. Uh, For Moderna, in their first 20 days after emergency use authorization, there were about 4 million doses of vaccine administered and 10 cases of severe life-threatening allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, giving a rate of 2.5 cases per million doses. So this gave rise to the CDC recommendation that people who have an immediate allergic reaction, immediate is defined as within four hours of any severity to an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine or any of its components may be at increased risk for one of these severe um, or anaphylactic allergic reactions. The component that is the most in question right now of the uh, ingredient list is polyethylene glycol. Um, There are also common non-life-threatening allergic reactions, rash, itchy sensations in the mouth and throat, sensations of throat closure, respiratory symptoms, puffy lips, et cetera, and these are all fairly well uh, managed with um, oral Benadryl. So to just touch on vaccine hesitancy, um, uh, there's been in the past year a tremendous amount of misinformation and disinformation that has really been fueled by the political and social unrest that we've all seen in this country. Um, also, um, the, um, there's been, there is a tremendous lack of trust in the healthcare system. The, um, the unprecedented unpre- um, racial unrest and dialogue that's been ongoing in this country for the last year is associated with an equally unprecedented understanding of past mistreatments, particularly in communities of color, um, that has fed into the mistrust that is ongoing today in many institutions, including the lack of trust in our healthcare system. Um, Many people are concerned that this process has just moved too fast, and I want to reassure people that um, the FDA, as part of their um, requirement for emergency use authorization, requires a median 
of 60 days of follow-up um, following the last dose of the vaccine series before they will review safety and efficacy data. And this relates to the fact that the vast majority of side effects following any vaccine occur within the first 42 to 60 days of immunization. So we are looking in that review process at the vast majority of side effects that are expected following immunization. I also want to assure people that the review process is in fact transparent and data-driven. If you feel you want more information, all of the data for the Pfizer review and the Moderna review are available on C-SPAN. There are eight hours for each of these. You can go back and watch it all. You can see the data, you can see the deliberation, and you can see the community feedback related to both of these vaccines. And then finally, related to religious concerns, um, there are in fact um, no human fetal or stem cell tissues that are used or were used in the development of either of these mRNA vaccines at any point in their development. So a brief whirlwind review, but I'm gonna stop there. Thank you so much. <laughs> now you can take a, run. <laughs> take a deep breath. Okay, next is um, my friend and colleague, um, Dr. Steven Spector. He is a distinguished professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases. Um, he is a world leader in HIV research. Um, he has emphasized throughout his career developing novel approaches for the detection, treatment, and eradication of human viral diseases. Um, he has run, as you just heard, one of the um, major trials for a vaccine for COVID-19. And um, he is gonna talk to us about um, making COVID-19 vaccines available to children. Dr. Spector. So the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 in children are very similar to those in adults. So you'll see fever, fatigue, headache, and many of the other symptoms. However, they're usually quite mild and are often considered to be some other viral infection that children have. And about 16% of children will have completely asymptomatic infection. One of the things that is relatively unique to children who are infected with COVID-19 is the uncommon complication that's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And this occurs in approximately one in 10,000 or even greater uh, of children who are in fact identified as infected with COVID-19. It's important to keep in mind that children in fact comprise 11% of all COVID-19 cases. So why do we need to immunize children against COVID-19? Well, I think some of them are obvious. We need in fact to uh, get children back to school and this has been a major concern. It's clear that uh, online learning has not been as successful as one might have, have hoped. We need to protect the teachers who are going to be teaching those classes and as well as children exposing their families and parents and grandparents uh, to COVID-19. In addition to that, I'm always asked by parents, well, when can children get back to their activities, particularly their, their sports teams? The other thing which I think is critical to children, particularly young children, is socialization. And I think that this is one of the very important areas that has lacked um, for children during this year of COVID-19. On a population basis, we need to think broadly. If in fact we're going to achieve herd e immunity, at least 80% of the population will need to be protected. The US population is currently approximately 331 million. However, children comprise 74 million, 
or 22% of the U.S. population. So that, in fact, if you don't immunize children, we have no chance of getting herd protection. And in fact, um, in a recent poll, no more than 70% of US, U.S. adults have said that they would be willing to consider getting immunized with a COVID-19 vaccine. You just saw this slide. And in fact, uh, as you've heard, there are two currently licensed vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and um, um, Moderna's vaccine. Only one of those vaccines, in fact, is currently licensed under the EUA that the FDA has given to both of these companies. And that's the Pfizer vaccine that can be used in children down to 16 years of age. However, you might have heard that there are some people who voted against the Pfizer vaccine. And those were people who, in fact, voted not because they didn't think it was a good vaccine, but because they were concerned that there were so few 16 and 17-year-olds. And in fact, with that emergency use authorization, there were only 138 16 and 17-year-olds who had received the Pfizer vaccine. So COVID-19 studies are ongoing in adolescents. Pfizer expanded their original placebo-controlled study to children who are 12 to less than 16 years of age, and they're planning to enroll 1,000 participants randomized one-to-one -to, -one to vaccine to placebo. Moderna also has started a randomized placebo-controlled trial in adolescents, 12 to less than 18 years, and they plan to enroll 2,000 participants, again, randomized one-to-one -one vaccine to placebo. There also are studies that are being planned uh, in children that are less than 12 years of age. Pfizer has a study that's planned uh, for these children, and the Moderna study, which we hope to start next month here at UCSD with Rady Children's Hospital, is going to enroll children who are less than 12 years of age in three different cohorts. And in this study, which will be a phase two, three um, study, there will be two parts. The first part will enroll 750 children. The current dosage of the Moderna vaccine is 100 micrograms per dose, divided in two doses 28 days apart. In this study, uh, children who are 6 to 12 years of age will get the 15 to 100 microgram dose, from 2 to less than 6, the 50 to 100 microgram dose, and 6 months will be 25, 50, and 100 microgram, and these will be escalating doses. So that once there has been an identified dose that seems to give the optimal um, immunologic effect of the vaccine with the least toxicity, there will then be a randomized blinded study of 6,000 children, 2,000 in each group. Children will be randomized three to one either to receive the vaccine or to, to receive placebo. The question that I am most often asked is when will vaccines be available for adolescents and children? And I don't have a crystal ball, but I've tried to look into it and see if, if in fact, based on where our studies are 
based on how I know accrual is for studies in children of when we might anticipate having um, vaccines available and approved as an EUA for children. I would anticipate that for adolescents 12 to less than 18 years of age, that by this summer, we will have an approved vaccine for these adolescents. And in fact, they will be able to be immunized by the fall academic year. For children who are six to less than 12 years, I think that will be a bit slower, but I would anticipate that by midsummer, or certainly early fall, we will have a vaccine for children who are six to 12 years of age. For children who are younger, this is gonna take a longer period of time, I would anticipate, just because these studies are very often more difficult to enter children into. And so what I would anticipate is that children two years to less than six years, that there will be a vaccine available at least by uh, the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. However, for children who are six months to less than two years, I would anticipate that these studies may in fact take a longer period of time and it may be uh, into the winter or um, spring of 2022 before we have a licensed vaccine for this population. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're now going to move on to Dr. Davy Smith. Um, Dr. Smith is the um, Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health in the Department of Medicine. Um, he's been engaged in this international effort to find safe and effective treatments for COVID-19, including serving as the International Protocol Chair for the um, Active 2 study part of the U.S. government's Operation Warp Speed. His research interests include um, translational research in virology and as well as um, basic research on virology. He's going to now talk to us about the very um, hot topic of um, variants of COVID-19 and um, what our concerns should be and what the effect of vaccines would be on the variants. Dr. Smith. Thank you for inviting me today. I'm going to talk about what is a variant of concern when we're talking about uh, SARS-CoV-2 or Junior. So CoV-2 was happy in bats. That's where it started. And it was uh, a coronavirus that lived in bats in China. And here's the virus and here's its little spike protein. And that spike protein was used to basically as the key that goes into the lock of this bat lung receptor to be able to, in fact, infect a bat lung cell. So it goes in, it makes a little connection there, and then that starts the infection within a bat. And then that bat could then spread it across to other bats. But humans uh, came on the scene and we offered a new home and it was uh, close enough to us that the virus was able to make a jump, which we call a zoonotic transmission. And once within a person, it was able to spread to other people. Um, and then we had this little virus that had its little spike protein that was well adapted to bats, now had a new uh, lock that it needed to pick, and that's the human lung receptor. While it fit in there, it wasn't perfect. So it needed to remodel its kitchen or its spike protein to better make that lock fit within that key. And this is where the evolution or the viral variant of concern happened. And when that happened, it was able to spread more easily from people. So here are two people on to even maybe five people from one person who's infected. But 
just as a point as a virologist, viruses do, don't want to kill, they want to spread. So this is called biological fitness. It doesn't do the virus any good to kill its host before it gets a chance to spread. So when we talk about evolution, it's usually that the virus is improving its ability to spread within the population. And here, uh, the population being us. So here's the global transmission of variants. I just used this as an example. Back in January and February, there was a variant called D1614. And what that meant, that in the spike protein at the 614th amino acid, it was an aspartic acid. And then all of a sudden we saw that uh, after around February, almost a year ago, we saw that there was a new change. So the virus had evolved away from that aspartic acid to a glycine. And, and as soon as that change happened, almost all the variants that we sequenced after that had this glycine rather than the aspartic acid. So we knew that the virus had started to adapt to us. And this was the increased infectivity and increased transmissibility in animal models. So somebody took it to the lab and saw even this new change made it more adaptable to other animals and probably also to us. So, um, a few questions that people ask. Um, one, is this variant more transmissible? Yes, I think that is probably the case. People are still working this out in the, in the various labs, but when we see these new variants of concerns pop up, like B117 from the UK, or the California variant, or the South African variant, um, as they're being called, those um, are looking to be more transmissible. Are they more deadly? No, I don't think so. Will the vaccine still work? Uh, yes, I think that the current vaccines um, are going to work for the current variants of concerns that we have. Um, and will the treatment still work? Yes, maybe. There are some variants that are coming that look like perhaps these monoclonal antibodies that we've been working very hard on might not work as well. And the same thing goes for these new variants that are coming across that perhaps the, the vaccine might not also work. But at the moment, I think they're still going to. And then there's the future variant of concern. So the, the virus is going to continue to evolve as long as it's in the population. That definitely means that it's probably going to be more transmissible. It probably also means that it's not going to be more deadly, even though if more people get infected, there will be more deaths, That, but that each infection is probably not going to be more deadly. And then will the vaccine still work? Maybe not. The virus is going to start to be in a population that gets the vaccine. So it's going to try to figure out how to get around those vaccine responses. So that evolution needs to be followed closely to see if the vaccine is still going to work. And the same thing goes with the treatments. The virus is going to be evolving in the setting of a treatment, which means it might become resistant to those treatments and still be able to spread. And we've seen this with lots of viruses before, like HIV and flu and hepatitis C. So we have to be very careful on the lookout for these resistant variants. Uh, here at UC San Diego, we're very interested in uh, surveillance for these variants. And this is just some of the work that we've done with the latest B117 variant within California. And um, just in general, how variants flow, but we can also look at how virus evolves or moves across California. That's what that big map is there showing all the arrows, but also at what time point uh, such as the lockdown stage we had early on versus the reopening stage versus the stay-at-home orders and the tier um, public health efforts that are going and seeing whether or not they have much impact 
on uh, variant flow within the state of California. Uh, we're working on publishing this paper soon, but uh, right now it looks like during the reopening phase, we saw quite a bit of migration across the state of California in these various, various variants. And this is my team, and I want to thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Davey. Um, the, uh, the next speaker is um, Dr. Shira Abelis. Um, she is um, assistant professor in the same division, Division of Infectious Diseases, and she's medical director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship at UC San Diego um, Health. Um, she is interested in um, um, how you evaluate methods to curb unnecessary antibiotic use, and um, she's really been our champion of understanding um, how we vaccinate people and how, how we do this effectively. So her talk is gonna be on um, vaccine um, dispensation and barriers to community distribution. Shira. Thank you. Okay. So thank you for the introduction and I'll be talking about kind of the barriers and, and our rollout and our strategy. So our big barrier is we want to get everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible, as Davey just was talking about, you know, beat the variant um, evolution. Um, and it's a big population and not that much vaccine to start out with. So, you know, as of about a year and a half ago, San Diego County was 3.3 million people. And we're currently vaccinating age 65 and greater in the region, and that's about a half million people. And if we get good uptake of the vaccine, which we hope, that's about 400,000 people who need a vaccine. And to even get through this small population of, of San Diego, you know, we'll need to be vaccinating 13,000 um, first doses daily. And then really we want even a bigger population. I won't even get to the kids um, that Dr. Spector was talking about, but 18 and above, it's about 2.6 million people. You know, so maybe 2 million people will want the vaccine. And to get through this within a few months, you know, three months we'll need to be vaccinating at almost 24,000 a day to get through the population in five months, it's about 14,000 a day. But really that's a lie. All these mRNA vaccines um, require two shots. So we'll really need to double this. So we really need to ramp up operations. So that's just a, a, a barrier there. And then we have to think about while we don't have enough vaccine to give to everybody, how do we approach um, the vaccine distribution? And so the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, put forth kind of three guiding principles, and that's to maximize benefits, promote justice, and mitigate health inequities. And um, I'm just gonna walk us through how that was applied to healthcare personnel, which um, were put by various um, prioritization guidance um, as, as the first group to get vaccinated. And so to maximize benefits, this group was felt to maximize use of um, vaccine by preserving the healthcare workforce. And if we don't have people getting sick in healthcare, we'll be able to take care of the sick people. So that meant maximizing benefits there. By promoting justice, the healthcare workforce is out there, can't work remotely, is out there facing COVID every day. So there was a sense of justice in promoting this group for vaccination. And then also, it's not just doctors and nurses, it's also the people cleaning the rooms, it's the radiology techs, it's just a very, you know, home healthcare person. So it's a large breadth of, of the population. Similarly, 
mitigating health inequities, you know, racial and ethnic minority groups have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and they're disproportionately represented in the healthcare workforce. So by um, vaccinating healthcare personnel, it kind of met green check marks in these three categories of how to guide um, the vaccination effort when we don't have enough vaccine. And then throughout all of it, um, we should be conscious of being transparent about our process and how we're making these decisions. And so I just wanted to address um, how, you know, where we are now. We're currently have done our healthcare workers, or actually, San Diego County is still trying to get healthcare workers in the county. Um, but we've also started to progress into phase 1B. So this is where individuals 65 and older are included. Um, and we haven't even gotten to these other tiers, but I'll just describe how UCSD Health is vaccinating our, our patient population in the 65 and above group. So we're looking at our primary care. And within that, we can use comorbidities to pull out the people who are high risk. So that kind of meets our, our maximized benefit. So who are the people at highest risk of very severe outcomes within this 65 and above group? We can identify and what we're doing is, is sending out invites, you know, and hoping that we get more vaccine and just get it out as quickly as possible. And we'll cover our primary care as quickly as possible and then broaden to our specialty cares as well, which includes, you know, our cancer center, et cetera. So people there's just a lot of people at risk. And so choosing out the comorbidities there and presenting, you know, the opportunity for vaccination to that group and then going more broadly. And you can see these are still big groups. And so while vaccine remains limited and we're just getting a couple thousand a week, we're also using something called the Healthy Places Index. And it's kind of a risk score on geography and it correlates very well um, where COVID has been impacting society most disproportionately. So this is a, you can go online and check out healthyplacesindex.org. Um, it's developed by California and it uses these indicators. And, and as I've spoken with some of my colleagues here and just the experience, this correlates very well on where people are most at risk for COVID-19 in the community. So that's, so I just wanted to talk about some more barriers we're facing, you know, and largely it's just that there's so much need and we just want to vaccinate everyone as quickly as possible, but our supply remains a bit unpredictable. Um, we don't know how much we're going to get and, you know, we're hoping that will change um, and that we'll kind of be able to forecast our efforts um, better with time. Um, but there's also right now, you know, I saw one of the questions was, can we get our vaccines in the clinics? And right now, while vaccine is scarce, we can't waste a single drop. And um, we also have to be, there are a lot of requirements about the management of these um, mRNA vaccines. And um, also, you know, each vial has kind of a, uh, not a surprise number of doses in it, but you may be able to squeeze out as much as possible. So for the time being, while things are so scarce, you know, we have to have kind of maximize our efforts and, and get the most out of every single vial. And so um, as Dr. Brenner already addressed, you know, one of our ways to strategize was to just go big because kind of the only way we're going to win at this is just move whatever vaccine we have, just get it out and get it into deltoids. Um, and so when some of our challenges was the healthcare system, we get an allotment that was just for our healthcare workers, but we live in this county and the county had an allotment for healthcare workers, but they just didn't have the capacity to move those vaccines out. And so we made this partnership and um, with the Padres as well, where we're able to vaccinate over 5,000 people a day. And this was put up 
The minute we found out there were vaccines that weren't getting out there, this partnership was formed. And within five days, um, we operationalized getting out thousands of doses a day, weather permitting. So um, this operation is big and it's to go big and it's to help San Diego County, but it's 300 volunteers a day around to keep this operation, operation operating smoothly. Um, and so we're hoping it, and I, we think it is inspiring others to kind of set this up in the region. And then hopefully we'll get such a robust um, workforce and, and really iron down our experience and fine tune it that we can continue to replicate this. And we're really proud of this effort. It's made um, national news. So USA Today, you can see commented on this effort. Um, so it's really a pride and joy. But how can we do better? So this is just a reminder. This is where COVID has really impacted our region. So you can see, you know, we know the South has hit really hard and um, this region up here as well. Um, and this is just you know, on San Diego Tribune, you could see where the most deaths from COVID have been in our region. So really in the South. And what you could see is this is where our vaccines have been. And so that we still haven't really met our ethical um, prioritization of really maximizing the benefit. And so we're still going to strive and, and continue to work on how can we get this out and um, even to populations that may be a bit more hesitant and mistrustful. So our road ahead is you know, building the workforce, mobilizing community support and building more super stations to move this vaccine and prevent any further variants and other challenges coming our way and really enhance our outreach to more vulnerable populations. So I just wanted to say, end this with saying thank you to all the volunteers who are coming and, and making this possible to the UCSD health leadership who kind of said, we need to go big. And then the amazing operations team that allowed it to come up within five days. Um, so I'll end with that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shira. Um, so it is now my pleasure to introduce um, Mayor um, Alejandra Sotelo Solis. Um, she was first elected to the National City Council in 2008 as just a second woman to hold that position and became the first um, Latina mayor of National City in um, 2018. Um, she also serves um, on um, SANDAG, on the um, Sweetwater Authority, and the MTS board. She is president and CEO of her um, consulting company called um, La Pluma Strategies, which provides nonprofit advocacy and grant writing services. And not least of which, we are proud to say she is an alumna of UC San Diego, where she um, earned a degree in um, political science. Please welcome um, Mayor Sotelo Solis. Well, buenos, uh, no, buenas tardes, everyone. I'm Alejandra Sotelo Solis, mayor for the city of National City. And I want to thank uh, the UC San Diego Health Sciences team for the invitation to participate today to share with you just um, two, two big things. One, kind of the boots on the ground efforts that have been taking place here in National City and what it meant for me to be a participant in the COVID-19 trial for the Johnson & Johnson or the Janssen um, uh, COVID-19 vaccine uh, trial here in National City. You know, it started um, back when uh, COVID-19, you know, really hit our community hard in March. And we created a partnership with the county uh, saying we needed to have additional uh, COVID-19 testing locations and support their T3 efforts, testing, uh, tracing, and treatment. And through that partnership, we became uh, one, the first uh, municipality to sign up to, uh, to, to engage our community, to encourage 
uh, lovingly, of course, to wear facial coverings. Second, it was the push to have additional testing sites here in the South Bay. And as was mentioned earlier, we've been disproportionately impacted by uh, COVID-19. We are those essential workers. We have people who have not taken any time off, um, but have been on the front line uh, since March. Uh, second, um, we now have five additional testing sites here, uh, one from the county, one from the state, and several of our local healthcare partners. So I really wanna thank everyone for taking a step in um, uh, this battle against uh, COVID-19 and really helping us with the T3 efforts. And then uh, over uh, late summer, early winter, we started discussing you know, various vaccines and it was, I'm a very proud UC San Diego alum. So when I hear about you know, the opportunity of um, UC San Diego looking for a venue we had our um, teams meet up and we identified El Toyon Park here in National City. And we were able to get it signed, sealed and delivered. And uh, we have UC San Diego Health uh, renting out our park uh, parking lot with eight trailers that has uh, hosted the AstraZeneca and Johnson uh, or Janssen uh, trial. And it was through the announcement uh, in October, encouraging our community to learn more about vaccines and what it took and just announcing that it was here in National City. I researched it, I heeded my own advice, looked it up. And within 10 minutes, I had filled out, filled out the online paperwork. And fast forward two days later, I had gotten a follow-up call. Um, and then they said I was enrolled and eligible uh, to participate. And I took it upon myself as an elected leader, one, if I'm asking my constituents to do something, I'd like to show them by example um, exactly what it is. Um, but I saw it, too, as an opportunity as a Latina, as a mom, as a community leader to dispel those myths that um, were brought about, you know, by several of our panelists beforehand that historically have uh, created questions uh, regarding participation in vaccine trials. So my first appointment, I did it all on camera. I had two nasal swabs. I had a blood draw. I had um, you know, a number of other questions asked of me, but I did it all on camera so that those who were considering entering into the trial understood what they were getting themselves into. But it also allowed me to have a conversation with my family members. And I had an aunt who, wasn't uh, necessarily the happiest that I was uh, participating in the trial. You know, it was like, well, why are you doing this? And I said, well, why not? Yeah, this is an opportunity. And she says, but why you? And I said, but why not me? I am reflective of my community. I am a working mom. Again, all of those hats that I wear and I have the ability to really amplify and dispel those myths. So it was a great opportunity for me to uh, be part of that effort. And I just had my day 70, um, um, what is it? The blood draw and temperature check, everything is a-okay. And during that time right after, uh, from the day of uh, till just about recently, um, been giving people updates. Hey, I feel good. You know, the shot in the arm was uh, as, um, as uh, uh, Vice Chancellor Brenner mentioned, that there was some soreness and some little achiness. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Uh, again, it's a double blind study. So I don't know if I got the placebo or the, the vaccine. However, 
Uh, I feel I did get the vaccine, but I'll, I'll wait for you all to uh, disclose which one I did get once um, once the vaccine is actually appro uh, approved by the FDA, which I'm so excited. Uh, Dr. Little mentioned that uh, next week, hopefully, fingers crossed that our community will have uh, you know, some good news because we have, and I'm very proud to have had that insight in partnership with UC San Diego, we have eight trailers that could potentially be another vaccine uh, distribution uh, point here in the South Bay. So a little bit more about how National City has been hit. Again, we have a population of about 60,000 people. Average income is about 41,000 for a family of four. So very much working class community, essential workers, multi-generations in or intergenerational household where you have grandma, you have mom and dad, and you have a working teen or young adult. And, you know, everyone um, has the higher risk of uh, one, of being exposed to COVID-19. And then, as I mentioned earlier, those comorbidities and lack of access to ongoing healthcare just exacerbates uh, what COVID-19 has shed the light on um, challenges for um, our, our communities, um, even more so. Uh, and that's not talking about the digital, digital divide, uh, access to healthy foods, um, and a multitude of other issues. That's for another talk. But it's, it's really, as we are talking about these opportunities, um, being able to, again, strengthen that partnership with UC San Diego, which I cannot wait to hear what the final result is regarding the emergency use for the Johnson, which is a one and done um, vaccine shot. Uh, but also too, uh, we were proud to announce the uh, counties hosting a, a pod, a point of distribution here in National City. So we encourage everyone to get vaccinated. Uh, we started a pledge campaign here in National City uh, that people will take the pledge to take the vaccine when they are eligible. We know that there are various phases that are going to continue to um, be uh, opened up as uh, we get more vaccines. And I think it's uh, important that we have the conversation now versus when it's our time uh, to be in the vaccine location. And again, 75 to 80% in order to get to herd immunity is what we need. So in my community, it's 48,000 people need to be registered or need to be vaccinated. So as we move forward, you know, to fight this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, my goal is to have as many opportunities, uh, just like where do you shop for groceries? You have a multitude of locations to go to, but sometimes you like where they offer the fresh fruit. You like uh, where they offer a certain type of cheese. All of these options, it's kind of like the vaccine. If you want uh, to do a drive-through, if you want to park uh, and, and go and get your vaccine, again, uh, like everything, we're getting into a, a, a nice uh, cadence as to you know, the various glitches and online and you know, two-in-one being inundated, but stay on it and stay confident. And I know that um, my job and my role, both being um, a Latina and bilingual um, representative, uh, I think it's really important and uh, to be that voice, uh, to share that it's okay to have and be nervous and to possibly have fears, but not to let the fear overtake the goal uh, to be part of the solution. And so with that, I just wanna again, thank UC San Diego Health, 
Dr. Little for uh, championing the Johnson um, uh, vaccine trial, which I was a part of, um, as well as uh, Dr. Spector and everybody who was on this panel. Um, but we need to continue being vigilant and to thank um, all of uh, the philanthropic partners who help make this a possibility because uh, we know that we work hand in hand with our educational sector, philanthropy and business to make this happen. And uh, this is one step closer to getting to where we were pre-pandemic days. So thank you again and uh, wishing everybody a very happy uh, rest of the day today. Thank you. How do I sign up for my vaccine and how closely will the two doses be administered? So um, how do you sign up? Um, the pro I mean, two options. One, call your provider, your healthcare system, or go to the county health department website. Um, there are a long list of vaccine centers, two super centers. Um, Shira can add more, but there are lots of sites. The challenge is a lot of them are booked. Keep clicking, keep going back. Um, uh, and the second is um, the two doses I explained, uh, Pfizer 21 days apart, Moderna is um, 28 days apart. The CDC has issued some guidance recently around uh, how far apart the doses can be. There's a four-day um, grace period. You can take either Pfizer or Moderna second dose four days earlier than the prescribed 21, 28 days. And you can take the sec second dose uh, six um weeks after the first dose, if that makes sense. So depending on, you know, Moderna or Pfizer, the second dose, the grace period is six weeks later or four days earlier than the prescribed uh, window would be. Um, and you should always take two doses of Moderna, two doses of Pfizer, except in exceptional circumstances. Uh, again, the CDC has issued some new guidance that in exceptional circumstances, you can mix them, but that should really be a very, very rare uh, event. I just wanted to ask um, um, Alejandra, what, what was your um, um, aunt concerned about? Why did she, what was her hesitancy about you participating in the vaccine trial? It was all of the questions that were asked, that were shared earlier. Oh, it's so fast, Miha. Are you sure that it's safe? And I had those same questions to uh, Dr. Little and her team, um, and they walked me through it. They, because they had just had the pause, uh, because there was a, a case in Europe, that you know they 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 found. And so for me, it was understanding that any vaccine trial has to have those pauses, and that's a pause that is in place for the safety of the participants. If they had not had that pause, it would have been something to you know, balk at and maybe uh, think they're not do using, uh, you know, that moral compass and really uh, heeding the advice and um, sticking to the rules. And so because of that, and learning that I said, I'm going to do it at the end. And again, she was still like, well, I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, unfortunately, um, that aunt, her husband, my Theo, uh, has now contracted COVID-19. Oh. And I'm encouraging them to still consider the vaccine later uh, once he recovers. Uh, again, it's, it's, we need to be part of the solution and we can't let fear or that hesitation stop us. Thank you, well said. Maybe Davey, um, you can follow up to that. Uh, people who've had COVID-19, what do you recommend as far as vaccinations? 
Uh, it's a it's a moving target at the moment. We do know that people who had their first infection have a much less likely chance of getting it again within uh, at least 90 days, probably up to six months if uh, the, the BRIT study is true. Um, I'm currently recommending people to get wait till at least 90 days after their infection to get the vaccine, but the CDC is... Um, they might back that off a little bit. But the the real issue is that there's just not a lot of data to tell us exactly when that is necessary. Thank you. Shira, there's a whole series of very technical questions about when you get vaccinated and who gets vaccinated. Maybe I can just read them and you can give some short answers. Uh, so um, so the, the most obvious one was, how do I sign up for my, my vaccine? How close to the two doses? We asked, we answered that one, how close to the two doses be administered? But, but how does just an average patient get contact? make contact? So it's two different systems. So if we're just talking about UCSD Health, we're doing the outreach um, according to the algorithm I shared. So people will be contacted through my chart. And if someone doesn't have my chart activated, they'll get a phone call. So, you know, there's a phone system for that. But then we also have this parallel Petco experience um, where you just kind of as Susan said, like, wait and find, you know, and, and and then that is open to the county. So it's open to anybody with any insurance from the county, as long as 65 and above. A lot of people have gotten their first dose of trying to figure out how to get their second dose. How, how does that work? Yeah, so that's a great question. And we, you know, if um, we had a perfect system and a perfect supply of vaccine, I think everyone could immediately schedule, but we are finding ourselves shifting location of where we're giving the vaccines and adapting our strategy as time goes on. So it's this um, plus minus system where it's like, well, we might tell you to go to this location, but we might change it in a week and, and that'll be confusing. So right now, you know, you get the ticket, but the schedule opens up probably within that week before that second dose is due. And again, that'll adapt and we'll get better at it over time, but that's how we're doing it right now. Um, and if you need to cancel that appointment, you know, you can go ahead and cancel and you should get the next MyChart ticket immediately back up. But, you know, we're, what we want to do is not mix. We both at, at Petco, it's just Moderna being given out. So it's a little less logistically complex. At UCSD Health, we just kind of get, oh, you're going to get one tray of Pfizer this week. Oh, you're going to get one tray of Moderna. And so we kind of have to separate that out so nobody crosses um, by accident. It's a, a simpler, smoother method. So we will adapt and improve on that over time, but check close to your 21 or 28 days and, and the schedule will be open then. If you get the first dose, how do you know you're going to get a second dose? How do you know this, there'll be vaccine available? Well, we think, especially now that we're coming into February, you know, it's been a priority to have the production. So um, we we are seeing that we're getting the supply. Certainly for our healthcare workers, there there was a practice of of making sure that uh, allotment was given out. But generally, what we're going to see, I think, over this next month is that we're going to get more and more and more. But as as Susan said. There is some flexibility. If you don't get it exactly at 28 days, it's okay to get it uh, the next week in case there is some unforeseen hiccup because there's a lot of unforeseen. We don't have a definite supply, but so there. But but we have confidence. We're, we're pretty. We feel confident that you'll get it. Um, Susan, there, there are a lot of questions about um, allergies and vaccines, and, and does that put you at more risk? Like, um, so let me just read you some of them, and you can answer them together. Um, for example, um, if you have an aspirin allergy, does that, does that put you at risk to getting a vaccine? 
Are there other medications that you'd be concerned about? Um, and then food allergies and nut allergies. So, so, that, so generally, is there anything that's yeah. warning that, that would preclude you from getting a vaccine and making yeah. you concerned? In, in general, people who have serious food allergies, um, um, bee sting allergies, um, et cetera, no, those are not contraindications to getting the mRNA vaccines. The things that are warnings are people who have serious, immediate, or life-threatening anaphylactic reactions to either one of the mRNA vaccines, so they had a serious allergic reaction to their first vaccine, or they have serious allergic reactions to injectable compounds, so previous vaccines, or specifically they know that they've had an allergic reaction to injectable, again, polyethylene glycol containing compounds. But in general, it's injectable compounds that have created the problem. It's not oral or food or topical or anything like that. So even if you've had anaphylaxis before to peanuts, you can go ahead and get Moderna or Pfizer. We'll monitor you for 15 minutes. Yes. I mean, 30 minutes. 30. 15. Yeah. Yeah. Let the people know. Um, and again, um, it's always good to go to a place that has, you know, the capability to do the kind of monitoring that you would need, but it is not a contraindication. If you have any concerns, talk to your doctor and certainly talk to the site where you're going to get vaccinated. But in general, those are the two contraindications, previous serious allergy to an mRNA vaccine or to one of the compounds in the vaccine. Here's um, a question from one of our faculty members. Um, this is Sonia and Coley um, Israel. Um, she wants to know, once you're vaccinated, when, when, when can you start traveling? <laughs> yeah, um, that's easy. We don't really know. Um, so there are no, we don't yet know what the quote correlative protection are. So, you know, when are you absolutely protected? We know that for each of the vaccines, the, the vaccine efficacy for Pfizer was seven days and beyond. The second vaccine for Moderna, it was 14 days and beyond. But that doesn't, I don't know when I'm protected after the vaccine. So um, the easy answer is after you've had your um, two-dose vaccine series and you're at least seven days out or 14 days out from seven days for Pfizer, 14 days for Moderna, um, you've got your vaccine card and you wear a mask and you can travel. But it really, there's no guarantee for any of them that you know you are protected. Thank you. Uh Here's another one for um, Alejandro. Um, what, what kind of community outreach and programs are currently underway? Um, and, and in particular, what's, what, what are you specifically doing in, in National City? Uh, with regards to UC San Diego Health or just as, as a whole for this? Just with respect to COVID-19. Well, uh, well, we've been uh, one, um, advertising one, the vaccine trial participation. That's one aspect of it. And that's been... Uh, via media buys and slots and radio and TV and social media. Uh, but beyond that, it's been, uh, again, the, the pod that we just announced, the point of distribution that we announced on Saturday or on Sunday, which has 500 vaccines uh, daily that will be going out. And I, again, can't wait. Uh, and I'm looking at Dr. Little to see what, what the outcome is for next week, because we are planning in our head, uh, at least in my head, you know, thinking long term. And you know, the, the question earlier was, okay, when am I ready to to go and live like I did pre-COVID? Well, we're all going to have to have the mentality of we're going to wear our masks probably through winter time. 
and you know have a match your outfit you know turn it into a positive thing uh sport your favorite team uh logo uh, whatever x is because a vaccine is only good if we reach that herd immunity to 75 to 80 percent people vaccinated and yes right now vaccine is limited so it's part and parcel you know to our outreach efforts letting people know they need to be flexible they need to be patient it took pretty much 10 months for people to feel comfortable wearing a facial covering. And that was something they put on top of their face, not in their body. So we have to be flexible with people wanting to learn more and ask questions. And then those trusted advocates here in National City, and I know that there's a call out uh, through the UC San Diego Health Sciences to get more vaccinators out there. And who does that look like? It looks like your dentist. Did you know that veterinarians can also be uh, vaccinators, doctors, nurses, the whole gamut. And so I've taken it upon myself to reach out to my local dentists here, say, why don't you help us be those trusted uh, partners? You're, you're either in their face or in their mouth, you know, one way or the other. And you can continue to really uh, let them know I'm here for you. And this is part of our team effort uh, for the city of National City, but also to regionally and nationwide and worldwide for that matter. Thank you. Um, Steve, there are a lot of questions about um, children and um, is it still considered correct that children are less likely to transmit the disease to others? That was one question. You know, um, you know I don't think we have good data on that. What it appears is that children are less likely to um, become in, infected in many circumstances. However, um, because there are so mild um, illnesses in many children, and again, you know, 15, 16% have no symptoms whatsoever. I don't think we really know what the ability is of children to transmit. We certainly know on an epidemiological basis for other respiratory viruses that children are often the vector within families. And so coming from school and then going in, into the family, it's often the young child that is the vector that goes in, into the family. So I don't think that there's enough information to say that children are not going to transmit. In fact, I would go the other direction and say, in all likelihood, children are going to transmit. And you discussed the trials for vaccinating children, but what about like for vaccinating college students? If we want college students to be able to come back on campus and be, have classes in real time in real life, um, is that required that they vaccinate or, 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 or are there other ways of doing this? Is there any plans to vaccinate college students? Well, you know, I think that that's a, a great question. And I think that they are a group that has been missed in sort of the tier protocol of when do you get immunized? And so I, I think that um, the CDC may wanna take a, a new look at whether or not you really wanna have college students immunized when, you know, so when the fall comes, uh, you can bring students back to campus. There, were, there was one other question that I just, I didn't want to miss, and that's about if you're planning on getting pregnant, yeah, um, yeah. should you um, 
you know, be, be immunized? And uh, I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, and in fact, uh, it may be advantageous. I wouldn't necessarily become pregnant right, you know, immediately before or after you were immunized because we have no data. But if you're planning in the future to become pregnant, there's absolutely no reason why you should not get one of the vaccines that are available. Um, in addition to that, I was asked if um, mothers, if new mothers um, can, can receive the, the vaccine. And uh, again, that is not currently, women are not uh, of that age are not currently on the list but if it were available, I would in fact encourage women to receive the vaccine and it might actually be advantageous to their infant uh, for their mother to be immunized. It actually has come up, Stephen, because um, if they're a healthcare worker and they're a new mom, you know, should they get vaccinated? The answer, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is yes, they should. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there are several questions. Um, here's one from Sam Armstrong about, um, I think it was Susan who mentioned that the, um, the vaccines are, um, even Moderna and Pfizer are still in phase three to a certain extent. And he went, what are we waiting for? What are we gonna learn by following up? What, what are we missing that that longer term follow-up will give us more insight? Durability. So I think one of the big questions that everybody wants to know, and it's probably somewhere in the Q&A, is will I need to get another shot? <laughs> yes. And so we really want to know the durability of the immune response um, and ideally some idea of this comment, the concept of correlates of immunity. So, um, you know, the goal will be to look at people who are developing covid and kind of look at the constellation of their immune response and see if there are predictors of the type of immune response that seems to correlate with protection and the type of immune response that seems to correlate with lack of protection. So that in the future, we, you know, six months from now, we may not be able to do these 40,000, 30,000 randomized clinical trials to placebo because that won't be ethical anymore. So we want, may want to look at surrogates, but we need to know what those surrogates are. So that's what we're looking for in these ongoing clinical trials. Davey, um, one of the questions was, is this going to become like the flu where every year you get a new vaccine based upon um, what the current um, sequence is that, that's, that's active? I think that it is entirely possible, but it's too early to tell. We're only a year into it and we're only in, you know, a few months into having a vaccine. So those studies are still needed and ongoing. And um, uh, the, I really love the mayor's advice that uh, it takes all of us to go in to do the research. And this is one of those research questions that's still open so we can have those answers. Then there are a whole series of questions about what does it mean to be vaccinated? Can, can you trans, still transmit the virus? Can you still get infected and be asymptomatic? Um, should, if you, after you're vaccinated, should you still be wearing a mask? Um, yeah. So I, I don't, um, who, probably all of you can answer that. <laughs> Susan, please. I'll, I'll just take it because I think that is, I wanted to say it in my slides, but I didn't have time. Um, that is one of the holes, frankly, in the entire vaccine, phase three vaccine portfolio. None of the clinical trials are set up to evaluate asymptomatic infection or transmission. So um, several of all of the studies are really looking at, as a secondary outcome, the frequency of asymptomatic infection. And so we will have some of that data. 
Um, but even when we get some of the frequency of asymptomatic infection, um, we're still not going to have the quest answers to the question of transmission. So um, right now, we don't know whether these vaccines prevent asymptomatic infection. That data will be coming. We don't have it now. But even when we do have it, we still don't know whether people are capable of transmitting um, uh, to other people. That will require an entirely different kind of study that we don't have yet. So again, going back to why do we still have to wear masks? A, we don't have herd immunity, and B, there are a lot of unanswered questions about whether or not people can still transmit if they have asymptomatic infection to others. Thank you. Um, Shira, there's a question about um, tracking distribution. There's so much in the news that seems to be contradictory. Like sometimes you think almost none of the vaccines actually been put into people's arms. It's all sitting in some freezer. And sometimes you think when you know what's going on at UC San Diego, we don't have any extra vaccine. Mm -hmm. so, so what's your understanding about that? Yeah, it, it is confusing and um, it, it is something that impacted our start here. You know, we were set up, the federal government gives it to the state of California and then it goes into these kind of pathways, some local health departments, some um, health institutions, and then it's supposed to get into the population, but it, it wasn't centrally organized. And so there were so many steps along the way where there was confusion and and lack of clarity. And so what I've been seeing the last couple of weeks is, you know, now California has a uh, on its website, you know, how many doses have gone to our county and how many vaccines have been distributed, but that didn't exist for the first month. So I'm hopeful that that'll improve in the coming weeks, but it's definitely been confusing and it's been left on us to kind of figure out where is the vaccine and where, where is it not. But I do think there was some poor reporting where people did not report that they actually had used the vaccine and therefore was sort of listed it, that the state thought there was far more available than there actually was. Right. So um, part of the complexity is we have to, so each site and why it's kind of convenient for us, we're a big site, so we have big infrastructure and our, and our electronic medical record system automatically reports to the San Diego Immunization Registry, which then automatically feeds into the California Immunization Registry. But, you know, we need to get to a lot of sites that don't necessarily have those kind of electronic medical records coordination and big teams to help assist that. So there's a big push, even a meeting, I can't remember now if it was this morning or yesterday morning, where, where the county is saying you need to report, you need to report. So there have been gaps in the system that we're trying to catch up on. I forget who's probably you all know the answer to this, but I forget who covered it in their slides. So the, the question was, what about teachers? Well, why is it not more of an emphasis to get teachers vaccinated? Teachers are coming up. It's just that there's so many people <laughs> who need to be vaccinated. So they, they are in phase 1B. The whole tranche of education is in there. So we are waiting. We're hoping there'll be more, even more specific guidance because um, education can just be a very big group. But um, there is an emphasis to get them done, um, but 65 and above is, is where we are right now, but um, they're also in phase 1B. There's some technical questions, Davey, about different types of vaccines and why there aren't any um, live vaccines or are there any plans for live attenuated vaccines for, um, um, for COVID-19? Yeah, so one of the, that's a good question. So one of the ways that they're looking at it is to make a construct where they take another virus um, and then they put in the spike protein in that other virus that sort of makes a, a, a new-ish live vaccine. 
um, that allows the virus, that new virus to produce that spike protein that allows to elicit that immune response. Um, and we think that that is probably one of the better ways to generate an immune response. That's the whole basis of the Janssen. And the I was going to say, that's the basis of the, of, of the Janssen, um, Johnson Johnson vaccine. That's correct. right. Yep. Is there concern that um, you'll raise the antibody also to the, vi- to the host virus itself, the virus, the delivery virus itself? Yep. So there's also an immune response that's probably going to be generated to that adenoviral vector. That's the virus that's carrying the payload of the spike protein. Steve, there are some other questions about um, who should and should not be vaccinated as far as we talked about moms and, and um, um, pregnant women. Are there any groups that you would not vaccinate? I mean, if the vaccine was available, is there, are there any exclusions that, you know, because you know, you know, many people say, but they'd love to get their college students vaccinated whenever the vaccine's available. They'd love to get, you know, their, their um, high school and, you know, and elementary school um, children vaccinated. Is there anything that that, that 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 we should be thinking about not people who should not be vaccinated? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just put out the, the sort of caveat. It's not a group I wouldn't vaccinate. As a matter of fact, it, people with underlying immunocompromised conditions. Um, yes, I would vaccinate them, but just be aware. These people were not um, eligible to participate in the clinical trials. So we really have no data on how effective the vaccines are in these populations. And it is possible that the vaccines will be potentially less effective. Um, And we don't really have any way of monitoring that. Um, It's not recommended that people monitor antibody responses. So yes, those that population of people I recommend should, the CDC recommends (laughs) should be vaccinated, but we don't really have any way of monitoring the outcome or knowing whether the vaccines are as effective in that population. Thank you. Sure, there are a couple of questions about, technical questions again, about you got your first vaccine, do you go back to the same place to get your second vaccine? Do you get to choose where you go? Um, so for example, one person says, um, I'm a UCSD patient, my appointment for the vaccine is in Chula Vista. Will my first shot automatically show, will my first shot automatically show up on my, my UCSD chart? So we are not, um, I think it's Sharp that's running the Chula Vista site for the county. So it does make things easier for coordination because it's a different computer systems um, than ours, but we do want to accommodate. We do, you know, hope to make it an easier process. So I guess the easy answer is the system probably will work smoother and it'll be an easier visit if you do return to the same kind of system where you got your initial shot, but um, you shouldn't be turned away. Uh, we just won't have you in our system and we'll need some sort of verification that, you know, bring your card, I got my shot. So that way we can make sure uh, it's the right dose. And, and in the county, they do have specific vaccines going on at specific sites. So you don't wanna to go to a Moderna site if your first dose was a Pfizer vaccine, for example. Thank you. So it makes it a little harder, but it's still doable, right? Right. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so, um, David, there's a question about your your, your talk about um, the um, UK variant and, and, and where that fits in, and is it, and is it found in San Diego? Uh, yeah, we, we do have the variant here in California. We have the variant here in San Diego. Uh, we picked it up early because we're doing more <laughs> sequencing than most places across the state and across the country. So uh, just because you don't see it in Montana doesn't mean it's there. It's just we haven't looked for it. 
we are um, just about out of time. I just wanted to thank our, our panel. And just does anyone want to have a final word? <laughs> Mrs. Mayor, would you like to final word? <laughs> You're asking an elected official if they want a, the microphone. So I will take <laughs> half of our community uh, as an alum, as a mom, as a leader, as a daughter, granddaughter. I just want to say thank you all uh, for being on that front line, for bringing the science, uh, bringing the statistics, bringing the reality to our, you know, to our government, but also to uh, helping us to dispel the myths. I really highly encourage you uh, again, because uh, we will be uh, you know, pushing, pushing the envelope even more so to make sure that you are in our communities, those hardest hit by COVID-19, um, because that's how we will get to our uh, pre-COVID-19 days. Uh, but we also too see this as a long-term relationship. It, just because COVID-19 happened, uh, doesn't mean it ends when COVID, you know, disappears from uh, the, the the earth, you know, or well, technically, uh, Dr. Smith says it's not going to disappear. So we'll, we'll just keep it at that when we, when we get to that uh, herd immunity. But I think there's so many opportunities and please to everyone watching. Um, thank you uh, for all of your support of, again, all of the people on this panel, but uh, even um, having the conversations within your own families. Because uh, I know we are having it in mind and yes. here in National City. So thank you so much. Thank you. So we'll stop there and thank you for your attention. Thank you guys so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.